I think the other, the other thing, um, related to disciplines is, you know, just add them like one at a time. If you try to do this overhaul in life and adopt eight or nine new disciplines all at one time, I think you're probably going to be disappointed, um, with your ability to follow through. Hey, it's great to have you back for another episode of the Craig Rochelle Leadership Podcast, where my goal, calling, and mission is to help you become a leader that people love to follow. To do that, I've got a good friend on today that this is an interview that's going to add tremendous value to your life. I want to tell you about Dan Clark. Dan previously served for 15 years as the vice president of Convoy of Hope which is one of the largest charities in the United States. And interestingly, Convoy is a group that our church partners with. From Convoy, he's now the CEO of Westfall Gold, fundraising consultancy and experience design agency that's helped his clients raise, are you ready for this? More than $2 billion through 550 gatherings. He's got a lot of very valuable leadership experience that I want him to share with you. So, hey, Dan, welcome to the broadcast. Hey, thanks, man. It's a privilege to be here. Thanks for the invitation. We've had the privilege of knowing each other for several years. And um, one of the things I've noticed about growing leaders is growing leaders generally have growing disciplines. And from the time I met you several years back, your leadership has grown, your leadership impact has grown, as well as some personal disciplines. And that's probably no coincidence that I think those things are related. I, I wonder if you would be open enough to share about some of your personal disciplines, how those have evolved and grown in the last few years. Sure, absolutely. And, uh, you know, this is uh, it's, it's a great question. We were talking about around the dinner table last night with our, our teenagers. We've got three kids, a couple in college, and we were talking about how motivation will actually only carry you so far at, at a point. Motivation will run out and it's discipline that sustains you mm. to get you to where you want to go. And uh, I guess a couple that have been instrumental in the last few years um, got really serious about uh, lifestyle, about fitness and diet, understanding how that affects so many things. I know this is a passion of yours. And um, frankly, it was, it was some challenge that you gave me that spurred on some of that. And I'm, I'm grateful for that push. Um, so, you know, getting, getting uh, a sweat in five, six days a week. Uh, there are some weeks that that, you know, I might miss a day or two, but as you like to say, it's not what you do uh, occasionally that matters. It's what you do consistently. Right. So I don't feel bad if I miss a day or two, yep. but I, I'm, I'm committed and I've got a, I've got a long range goal. I'm 45 and my goal is to be in the best shape of my life at age 50. And so I think about in each season, what do I need to do? What disciplines do I need to commit to in this season to get me to that goal? I'm not looking for a short-term win. I'm looking for something that's further out. And so right now my goal uh, as it relates to getting in the gym is 20 days a month. I need 20 days a month. And some weeks it's, you know, it's going to look different than others, but that's all right. Um, another one in the last year that uh, I, I really, well, I enjoy the benefits of it, but cold plunging. Now we've talked a little bit about this, but we got a cold plunge and, uh, you know, you're getting in a full tub of uh, sub 50 degree water. I do it first thing in the morning every day when I'm home, when I'm traveling, obviously not. But uh, every day that I'm home, it's the first thing I do before I have a cup of coffee or anything else. I go put my body in that uh, in that tub of water for anywhere between five and 20 minutes. And the benefits of cold plunging, I won't spend the time here. People can read about it online. But um, man, 
the there's nothing in your day, you know, pending some sort of catastrophic tragedy, there's nothing in your day that will induce the level of physiological stress that getting in 50 degree or, you know, or colder water first thing in the morning will do to your body. And so it's kind of this, you're, you're setting the bar at the beginning. There's nothing I'm going to do today is going to be harder than this. And uh, I love it. Well, so interestingly, there's a couple things that I want to just highlight. One is you have what I would call an input goal, not an outcome goal. So you didn't say, I want to lose 10 pounds or I want to be able to run a marathon. But what you said is I want to go to the gym 20 days in a month. And with your schedule and travel, that's probably a pretty worthy goal. And so that that's interesting because a lot of times we focus on the outcome. So your win is if you show up and then the cold plunge, I like the, there is a lot of science behind what it does to our body, but you're talking about winning a battle in your mind first thing which helps you yeah. other places. I'd love to know too, just how, how does becoming more disciplined? So that that's going to help your, your body, your health, but it, there's also somehow those disciplines translate into your leadership. Can you tell me why does going to the gym, why would that ever make you a better leader? Oh man, you know, the benefits, you, you know, it, uh, the benefits of exercise, they're as much mental and emotional um, as they are physical and, you know, they create a, a momentum. There's, uh, you know, I'm just, I am, I'm a better leader. I'm a better husband. I'm a better person, a better friend, you know, all, all the different relationship categories. I'm better when I, when I'm giving myself to that discipline, when I'm staying committed, um, you know, you can feel it. Uh, I, I go two, three days without a good hard workout and, and I can feel the effect. And I have to assume then that those around me can too. And, and so I, I have that in mind, um, when I, when I put in the time. I think the other, the other thing, um, related to disciplines is, you know, just add them like one at a time. If you try to do this overhaul in life and adopt eight or nine new disciplines all at one time, I think you're probably going to be disappointed, um, with your ability to follow through. So pick kind of, pick an order and I, you know, I'll have people uh, observe, say, man, Dan, you seem like a really disciplined person. And I don't know that I always feel that way about myself, but I've committed to it for enough years in, in a row that it just, it accumulates. And now you're not even thinking about it anymore. It's just a part of your rhythm. It's just how you do life. Yeah. I, I think forward progress outside of your profession creates forward progress in your profession. It keeps your mind sharp. It introduces you to new people. I'm a, I love the idea of working out, but that's not the answer for everybody. It could be that you're an avid reader or it could Absolutely. be that you're in some kind of a social club where you're interacting with great people. But I think that yeah. having having something that's unrelated to what you do every day that helps you grow really increases your productivity and effectiveness in what you do every day. And so I've just noticed that in you and I kind of tip my hat to it because you've made a lot oh, of progress. Thanks. And I think that that is not, certainly not the sole contributor to your recent um, leadership success, but I think it is a piece of the puzzle. And I, I wanted to highlight that. It is pretty cool. We met years ago when you were a top leader for one of the largest charities in, in the world. And then you went and took over Westfall Gold, another group I was uh, had worked with before, and now you're the CEO. I'm interested, you talking to some leaders, there will be a lot of leaders that take over something they didn't start and move into an organization. So you didn't pick the team, you didn't build the culture, but you stepped into it. 
what's one or two things that stand out in your mind that you've learned as someone who started leading something that you didn't launch? You know, I had some great counsel uh, from some friends and, and mentors. Uh, Jimmy Miato, the CEO of Compassion International, was one. I talked with him about his transition in uh, many years ago following Wes Stafford, who was such a great leader building compassion to, to what it is today. And um, he, he gave me something that I put to, put to use that was super helpful. He called them the four L's. And he, he said the, the goal going in is to listen, learn, love, and then lead. Li- you know, listening to her would kind of be a common practice for a new top leader going into an organization. So you do that. You're listening with the intent of learning all that you can. And I, I love that component of what does it mean to love people well in this context? Because you're entering their world. So what does it look like to love them well in, in that context. And after you've developed a, a leadership worldview, after you've taken time to listen, learn, and learn what it means to love them well, then you're ready to lead. So don't, don't be premature. Take the time, invest it. It'll pay dividends down the road. Um, there's a great book that I was given by one of my coaches called The First 90 Days by Michael Watkins. Man, that was like a, a playbook for how to do it well. Um, also, my friend, uh, our mutual friend, Tyler Reagan, he wrote a book several years ago called Leading Things You Didn't Start. There was a lot of good nuggets in that. Uh, talked about you know honoring the past without being trapped by it. Kind of that, uh, that axiom you drive that the past prepares us. It doesn't define us. Um, you know, whether you've got good things or bad things, and you're going to have both in the past that you have to you have to deal with. But um, I guess quick tips for leaders that are stepping into that journey. Um, you know, I mentioned the four L's, but I would encourage you be yourself. Don't try to be don't try to be like the last guy or try to intentionally be different than the last guy. Be yourself, as you often say. People will follow a leader that's real. So be real. Be true to yourself. Uh, focus hard on understanding the culture. You can't engage in it. You can't lead through it. You can't change it how it might need to be changed if you don't understand the culture. Uh, well, and uh, another would be to revisit the fundamentals. Don't assume that those core components like vision, mission, and values are are understood or fully embraced by the team that you're about to lead. You need to go back and make sure that is that's there. Um, and if you need help uh, in those early days, kind of reestablishing vision, mission, values, employ a third party. Bring in a bring in a, a consultant to help walk your team through that process. It's really valuable to have a third party to say some things for you that you might want to say yourself. Um, and then last, probably most important, is lead with bold vision. You want to capture the hearts and minds, the attention of this team that you're now responsible for leading. Don't dream small. Mm-hmm. Dream big. Mm-hmm. Lead with bold vision. Mm-hmm. Th- those are really good, Dan. Listen, and you called it a listening tour, which I think is is kind of classic advice anytime you're taking over something you didn't start. Learn. Yeah love and lead. I'm curious on the listening part, a couple of questions. I'd like to know kind of how long, is it a a week? Is it six months? How long do you listen? And what were one, two, three questions that came to mind? What kind of information were you trying to dig out? And how long were you digging? 
Man, it took us uh, probably three months to get through. And, and at the time, uh, you know, we've <laughs> we've grown a ton. We, we've doubled our our team, more than doubled our team in the the last two years. Um, at the start, though, it it, uh, it took about ninety days to get through the whole team. And I'm spending you know thirty minutes to sixty minutes with each individual, a little bit longer with leaders that have more responsibility. They, they've got more to account for. Um, but hearing from every single person and really just trying to understand uh, who they are. I think first and foremost, I'm trying to understand the person even more than the role or the function. Who am I talking to? Um, and, and that connects to the, I want to know what it is to love this person well. But then, uh, you know, you're, you're trying to, you're trying to unpack the, the history, what's kind of the skeletons in the closet. You're trying to figure out what, uh, what moves their heart, um, what's got them most excited, what's got them most frustrated. Um, you ask them the question, if you were in my seat right now, mm-hmm. what would you do? Great what, what are the first three things you'd set your hands to? Mm-hmm. That's a great question. And so you're getting to know both the person and the organization uh, kind of all at the same time. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And so you said, Dan, that, and this is impressive for any organization, that you've doubled your team in a two-year period. So that's that's rapid growth. I mean, that's a lot. And most people would say that's really fun, but you'd also say that's really hard, right? <laughs> Our team certainly would. Yes, sir. Yeah, yeah. So, so talk to me a little bit about what have you what have you learned in scaling up. Uh, maybe something that you say I didn't expect this, and and maybe other things you said I did expect it. What what what's some top lessons you learned from doubling the organizational impact and team in two years? I think uh, the first thing that comes to mind is you need to have a a, a bold vision that answers the why question. Um, I talked a, a minute ago about you know you got to have a bold vision if you want to capture the hearts and minds of your team, but it's got to answer the why. What's the point of getting bigger? Is it just to make more money? And and if so, what's the purpose of the profit? What's the purpose connected to it? Is it you know, just to sell more widgets. What's the why? For us, the why getting bigger is the more organizations we can help, the more life transformation we can fuel, the more we uh, touch and uh, impact needs, you know, around the world. So there's this virtue for us that's connected to growth. But I think for any company, I've got a, a friend who leads a, a company that's at scale. And, um, you know, they they talk openly, proudly, you know, that profit is good and it has a purpose. And they talk about uh, the virtue of creating jobs and investing in community and using those profits to meet needs. And so it, I don't think it matters what industry you're in, but you need to you need to connect a why. And there needs to be a component of common good in your why. Um Obviously, in, in the process of scaling an organization, there's a lot of different strategy. There's uh, different levers that you're going to be pulling and engaging with. Um, you got to make sure your profitability is there. Profit is ultimately going to uh, lead to um, your, your – it's going to affect your ability to invest in new products, services, and growth without having to accrue unnecessary debt. You're monitoring cash flow. You're dealing with capital allocation. Uh, leverage is another one. You, you're 
ratio of players and coaches. You got to make sure that ratio is in your favor as you grow. Uh, acquisitions. We've had a couple of key acquisitions um, in our first couple of years. That's another way to grow. And then product development would be uh, one of it. Uh, exploring new ways to bring your services to market. Um, and one of those we're super excited about is going to be launching in January. Uh, we're pro- we produced our first masterclass uh, video series. And uh, Craig, you're a part of it along with um, a few other uh, pastors that, that we know, Chris Hodges, Kerry Newhoff, uh, Ashley Woldridge, and a number of other voices. Uh, this first volume is going to be directed at uh, church leaders, at pastors. We're envisioned multiple volumes down the road for all sorts of sectors, but this first one, um, we're, uh, we're eager to help local churches in the same way that we've helped nonprofit organizations for the last uh, 20 years. More than $2 billion there, but, you know, what could we do for the local church? So sure. thrilled to partner with you in that project for sure. Well, happy to be a part of it. And I'll, I'll have our team linked to that in the, uh, the leader guide so pastors can find out more about it. I appreciate your heart to help churches grow in their generosity I want to talk to you even a little bit more about what you do in generosity in, in a few minutes. Along those lines of, of scaling up, I, I would just say to our listening community, what Dan just told you was almost a masterclass in leadership right there. And you may want to go back and listen to the list. You, you rattled it off almost like it was second nature, but you're talking about profitability. You're talking about cash flow. You're talking about leverage and debt. You're talking about guarding the culture. You're talking about keeping the why in front of people. You're talking about acquisition, product development. And, and, and you just, you literally rattled it off as if, you know, we're just, you know, two, you know, two guys talking about the latest football game or whatever. But everything in there you said matters so much. I'm going to ask you a, a question that's almost impossible to answer. I'm going to give you some categories. Which is most important when you're scaling up? Is it positive cash flow? Is it asset allocation? Is it team development? Is it culture of the organization? Is it vision for the future? Is it the why? Is it something I haven't named? If you're going to say in a fast-growing organization, above everything else, my top priority is, and I don't have a right answer in my mind. I'm just curious, what would you say? Yeah, top priority. Um, man, cash flow is the fuel that keeps the plane in the air. It, it just is. Uh, but cash flow is going to be affected by profitability. So if you are not, if you are not keenly aware of uh, where your profit is coming from and the timing of that profit, how it's going to affect cash flow, it's going to inhibit you. I mean, you can have a great plane on the tarmac, but if it's got no gas in the engine, you're not going anywhere. Yeah, um, I think Donald Miller uses the same illustration he of the plane, and, and cash flow is a big, big, big part of it. So, yeah, you don't have a culture if you can't pay the bills, and so if and, that's right. And when you're growing, sometimes sometimes profitability is difficult because you you'll have to pour money into it and take some risk. I'm I'm curious. I don't know the answer to this. I am guessing that you probably had at least one or two strategic risks in scaling up? Is there something that you did early on that was kind of like, if this works, it's going to be great. If it doesn't work, it could be difficult. Was there a, a risk you took that paid off or maybe didn't pay off? Yeah. I mean, candidly, one of them was, it was connected to our, our pricing. Um, everything has gotten more expensive in the last couple of years. We're living in an inflationary period and, um, you know, that, that affected our, uh, 
our cost of, uh, of services. And we're very mindful of how we price our services because of who we're serving. We understand that it's donor dollars that are fueling uh, the organizations that we're serving. So we're, we're very mindful of, um, you know, what, what we charge for our services. And we're, we're very slow to increase prices. And I think the, the company had been um, very slow up to this point, And it was impairing our ability not only to scale, but also to serve well. And we needed to right size our, our team and workloads. And so we we went to market with a, a new pricing uh, strategy that was, it was bold. Um, but and we didn't know how the market was going to react. Is this going to immediately uh, send us down the hill, uh, down the tube? Or um, and, and in fact, what happened was the the first year we had a record new sales number. Not only did the market respond well um, because the the value of our services was commensurate to the price, and that's that's important. You got to pay attention to value and cost, two different concepts. But our value was there, and so the market responded in a way record new sales. And, uh, we've seen that year over year now. And, you know, it's interesting. One of my, one of my friends who leads a company shared an article with me, um, that talked about the lack of leaders that we currently have in the marketplace that have ever led through a high inflationary period. And I'm not talking about 2007. I'm talking back to Jimmy Carter era. And they studied the companies that not only survived, but thrived during that period. And the one commonality was they were unafraid and unapologetic about raising the prices. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Well, the psychology of pricing is really interesting because a lot of times we're afraid that if you raise prices, that's going to drive people away. And in fact, sometimes, and you found there's an inverse effect, that if you are delivering raising prices, it actually does draw more business. There is such thing as too much. And if you're greedy, that's going to not ever work for anybody. But it sounds like right. you made the right decision and and you're right it's a it is a different ball game today with higher interest rates i it, when i you know was emerging in leadership back in the late 1990s or actually late 1980s when i started in ministry early 1990s interest was really really high and i was a very young adult but i remember it and now people are have never seen interest where it is and that's a big um, multiplying impact on a business negatively if you're borrowing uh, capital along the way. But anyway, you've managed that well. I want to ask a question that's going to impact a significant portion of our community. And Dan, we've debated this privately. I'm in a high-touch type of ministry in the local church. And so face-to-face -face conversations matters a lot. Being um, in office as a team is a high value of ours. I'm aware that in many parts of our country, in many parts of the world right now, working remote is not only more common, but more necessary in a lot of places. You've done this well. And um, I'm curious as to what are you learning about, uh, how do you lead effectively when people are not not face-to-face? -face? Yeah, it's a great question. And it's one that we are, we're constantly learning. We are trying to be students of this, uh, our leadership team. Um, you know, I am, in, I am personally, I'm intrigued by the challenge. Um, I, I don't believe that an all remote construct fits all companies, all industries. I believe like you do, uh, like others, that presence matters. It matters. Um, but I'm, I'm not convinced that we need to be as present as much as the conventional design dictates this, you know, eight to five, 
in an office, in a cubicle, whatever. Um, technology, you know, it's just, it's changed the game, like it or not. And uh, I do believe that it can, it can lead to increased effectiveness and productivity. And I'm compelled, I think our, our leadership team were compelled to find the good. There's a lot of social implications. Um, and, and I'm fascinated by the history. If, if you look back at the pre-industrial revolution, you know, just a couple hundred years ago, um, you know, family size was bigger. Um, you had both parents working on the family estate, the family farm. Um, and, and then something happened, industrial revolution. And we've got one or two parents going to spend 40 plus hours a week in an office or factory or something. And actually it was a lot more than 40 then. And you saw family size get smaller. You saw divorce rates go up. The industrial revolution brought a lot of great things to society, but it also it, it did cause some harm, if you want to call it that. I guess it depends on your perspective, but it impacted the family unit as well. And so, you know, presence matters in the office. It also matters at home. It matters in your other relationships in life. And there's, there's a lot that can be said by, uh, the exchange, the trade that, that happens when people don't have to commute. Uh, they don't have to relocate their families. There's, there's just a lot, uh, there's a lot to be said. And so much of what we understand as being conventional um, work structure, work expectations, it's very modern. You know, I spoke industrial revolution 200 years ago, but the concept of a 40 hour work week even was just within the last century. And that, that was for good reasons because we had employers mandating people be on the factory floor for 80, 90 hours a week, which obviously is uh, not a, a value we would support. But, um, I am, I am convinced that the future, uh, can look different than the present and it can be better. Uh, so the, th- I guess the things that we're leaning, uh, into now, the things that we're, uh, learning now, first of all, um, you need to be all remote, your entire team, or some are going to be disadvantaged. If you have some people who are in the office and some people that are remote, you are going to have an us and them in your culture. And um, if you're okay with that, so be it. But you just, you need to know you are going to create a, so are a rift. You, are, you all remote? Divide. are you all remote? We are, we are all remote. Okay. We have got, uh, you know, 80, 90 team members that are spread out coast to coast from Rhode Island, Florida, California, all points in between. And to be fair, you are remote by necessity, meaning on any given weekend, you're in different cities to do what you're doing. So you are by necessity, you have to be in different cities all the time doing fundraising yeah, work. It, absolutely. But the company did for the first uh, 18, 19 years, we we were all in the Atlanta area. We had beautiful offices in the uh, downtown area of Atlanta. And then, you know, COVID hit. You intentionally moved to all remote. We did, but we also acknowledged that the offices were empty a lot of the time for the reason that you just stated, because the team is out traveling, producing events all the time. But um, I, I would offer three quick tips for leaders that are um, stepping into or trying to lead well through a remote culture. Um, I think there are really three three requirements for success. The first is, as a leader, you better be really comfortable empowering your people. If you are not a leader who empowers, if you're a leader who likes to uh, retain control and keep it close, you're going to struggle because you're not going to get very far very fast. 
because your people are out there working on islands. And if you want to mobilize them for greatest impact, you need to empower them as much as possible. Second thing is transparency. You have to over communicate and even be more transparent than you would if you were all in a building together because people aren't going to just pick up on the subtle things that you would if you were walking around or through an office building. So it, again, if you're a leader that likes to keep things close to the vest, this is going to push you outside of your comfort zone because people are wondering what's going on. What are our leaders thinking about? Where are we headed? So it requires greater transparency to lead an all remote workforce. And then the third one, and I think this is a discipline that we're really studying and trying to improve on. It's asynchronous communication. Um, meaning we don't require everybody to be in the same spot, even virtually at the same time in order to receive a communication. You know, an easy example of that would be an email. You can read an email anywhere at any time, but how do we go beyond email? Um, so, you know, video messages would be an example, uh, recording messages that get pushed out to the team, all kinds of different things. There's a, a company called GitLab, G-I-T-L-A-B, um, that is doing this at scale with great success. They've got a workforce of 2,000 uh, employees, uh, last count, um, and they're all over the world. And they have been kind of open source and sharing their knowledge and their information so that companies like ours can benefit and, and learn from their experience. So, uh, uh, again, just intrigued. Uh, I'm intrigued by the challenge and admit it. I, I would rather be in the room with you, with others for sure, but the game has changed and we can either fight it or we can lean in and try to make it work. I agree. The game has changed. For example, you know, nine to five, whatever. I was an eight to five guy. I don't even know where the nine came from. And, <laughs> but, but where I live now, you know, school starts at nine or nine fifteen, and parents can't even cannot even be in the office till nine thirty. Then they have to pick up their kids at three o'clock, and so yeah. like, you know, nine to five is virtually impossible for parents without options or busing, you know, and such. So, the world has changed, and I would just say, you know, to people listening right now, that there is no strategy that is a one size fits all that I, I would right. encourage you to really be intentional about your strategy and then be unapologetic about it. Meaning I am I am still a big believer in what we do here, that presence matters. So we say presence when possible, remote when necessary. And the flexibility, they, there will be times when it's necessary, but honestly, I want people together as often as they can be for what we do. But I mean, we're going to communicate that up front and we're going to be clear about it. On the other hand, you know, there are benefits of being, of being remote. And so you want to be clear up front. And then I would not try to follow a model as much as I would try to create something that really works for your mission and your purpose. And I, and I do agree with you. I think we have to be creative. I want to, um, I got to respect our time, but I want to learn a little bit. We have a ton of church leaders, a ton of nonprofit leaders right now. And it's interesting with the economy has been kind of touch and go. Are we going to enter a recession? Are we not? What's going to happen with interest rates? Are they finally stopped? Um, all of this impacts giving trends to some degree. Um, sure. Seems like the rich are getting richer. Everybody else is struggling more. Can you kind of give us a summary for our, our nonprofit leaders? What are you seeing in giving trends and what are some best practices to help people be generous toward the missions we care about? 
Yeah, two trends that we we see at a high level that we're paying a, a lot of attention to is um, that major donor giving is actually increasing, and and this is interesting because la- last year in particular was a tough year for philanthropy. I mean, giving was down across all sectors, all donor segments, except for major donors. Major donor was actually uh, major donor giving was actually up. 8.6% uh, last year, which was intriguing. It, and um, I think inspiring though, too, because it's it's those who have more are, they seem to be willing to pick up more of the tab to take care of more of the need. Uh, people of faith are responding to that mandate that to whom much is given, much is required. And that's been inspiring to see. Um, second thing that we've seen, second trend is there's really been, and this has been going for about 15 years now, uh, there's been a consolidation in giving, meaning that fewer people are giving a larger percentage of the total dollars. And, you know, it it used to be like an 80-20 mix, uh, the Pareto principle. Um, You know, 80% of the money comes from 20% of the givers. But what we've seen is a, a uh, consolidation where it's more like 90-10 for most organizations. Now it's 10% of the, the donors are giving 90% of the money. And if the, uh, you know, economists, uh, who speculate on, uh, everything, if they're right, if the income gap continues to widen, then this is going to be very consequential for donor funded organizations, whether you're a church, a nonprofit. I mean, it, it really doesn't matter. It's, it's going to become very consequential. You're going to need to have an effective major donor engagement strategy. If for those who do, they're not just going to survive; they're going to thrive during these these periods. But uh, you know, those who don't, it's going to be a struggle. Um, so that that definitely has our attention. You know, in terms of best practices, um, you know, that's one of the reasons we created the the master class. Is uh, we're exploring new ways to empower, to share our knowledge gained over the last 21 years. And, um, you know, speaking of, of generosity, Craig, very generous of you to donate any of your proceeds from that project directly to church planning. Oh, I know that's to. close to your heart. Yep. And, um, you know, so we're, we're really excited about, about the master class because we believe it's going to be, it's going to serve far more people, uh, than we could with our own hands just by sharing what we know. And, um, yeah, that's going to be great. Well, I appreciate you putting together some of the best leaders in, in the church field to help churches generate more generous donors. And then I think you hope to create more classes in the we future do. to impact more people. So again, we'll link to that in the uh, the leader guide. So for any church leaders who may want to help grow their generosity, I'll ask you kind of a closing question, and I'm going to broaden it just a little bit, but your specialty right now really is helping people give toward ministries and mission that matters. But you've also done this with people's lives, like the the people who've joined Westfall Gold, they're giving not their money to it, they're giving their hearts to it, they're giving their time to it, they're giving their their missions to it. So I would love for you to talk directly to our audience in, in any way you want. Talk to us about how we can invite people to give big. It might be might be our finances, it might be our whole heart to a mission. Um, I, I found that a lot of leaders are really afraid to ask people to give. Talk, talk me through it. Give me, give me your um, short version of the masterclass 
on why it's actually right and how to ask people to give whatever it is, their heart, their mind, their mission, their time towards something that matters? (laughs) That's a a big question with a a lot of answers underneath of it. Take your Um, your time and and, and bring it, because this is really important. Yeah, you know, when we're... When we're asking somebody to give to a, a cause, to a mission that is going to impact the lives of others, you, you need to understand that you, you're playing the role of ambassador. You, you're not asking for yourself. Um, so get, get past, get past that, that should help you get past fear of rejection. They're not rejecting you. Um, you're not asking for yourself. So there's not, there's not like something in it for you. You are asking on behalf of that person whose life is going to be transformed by the generosity of the person that's across from you. You, you are, you are a voice for the voiceless in that moment. And you need to, you need to understand that the number one reason that people give is because they're asked. And the number one reason people don't give is because they're not asked. So leader, it's kind of on you in that moment. And you need to step into that gap and find the courage, understand that no has no power over you. If, if they say no, um, you know, as a person of faith, I just believe that God has got somebody else kind of next in line that is my yes. And I just, I'm not afraid of a no. I'll hear no 10 times and I'm just excited about number 11 because my yes is waiting for me somewhere. And I, I think too, motivated by, by my faith and, and that perspective that it brings, all of these needs that we are we are giving ourselves to 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 support and to grow and to expand you know they touch the lives of people and god cares about people more than i do he cares about the needs of people more than i possibly could and if we will care about the things that he cares about he will provide everything that we need he is for us in those in those moments and um I think that is the that is the spirit that that provides the courage that I have leaned on in my years and our team speaking for them as well that is that is what motivates us that's uh what causes us to believe that the impossible is possible and that it's worth pursuing and we dare not give up we dare not fail to try um, we don't, we don't pursue small things. You know, one of the first questions we ask when an organization calls and says, Hey, we want your help. It, it's the why question. It's, you know, we need help raising money for what? Why? If, if you are just trying to raise money for, uh, something that's, that's small, that's insignificant, and that's not to pass any judgment, but, you know, the, what you're going to hear back from us is you need to dream bigger. Right. Hey, Craig here, and we know that the quality of your decisions will determine the quality of your life. The problem is a lot of us are not great decision makers. Uh, In episodes 145 and 147, we're learning the strategies for becoming strong, intentional decision makers. And we dig into delegating emotions, making mistakes, timing, and so much more. In fact, there's so much to learn about decision making that it doesn't fit into two episodes. To help you build a specific plan to grow in your decision-making, I've created an extra exclusive teaching you can only get as a part of our leadership community. It's a bonus episode called 
Discover your decision-making style, and it's only for those of you on our email list. Based on my research, there are five styles of decision-making, and my goal is to help you identify your dominant style and build a game-changing plan for making great decisions. Get it free by going to life.church slash decision style, life.church slash decision style, and we'll help you get better at making decisions. Now, back to the episode. Need dream bigger because people give to big vision. They love heroic vision. Mm -hmm. Well, that's obviously a part of your leadership that you're always dreaming big. And then it's really cool. You're kind of a vision accelerator, meaning you get to help people. And and what you're doing is you're really providing a gift. And Dan, it took me years as a pastor to learn that, you know, you're really not just asking for people to give and, you know, it's never for our benefit, but it's actually a blessing when people get to give to something that makes a difference and they, they, uh, it's shocking to me. They will say, thank you all the time. Like, thank you for creating an organization we can give big to. Thank you for having a big vision. And you've done that. So a couple of ways you can help people. One is you created advance the masterclass that is specifically designed to help church leaders create a culture of generosity in their churches. I was honored to be a part of that and honored to donate whatever I would make off of it. And we'll link to that. And then Westfall Gold, if there's a nonprofit that wants to maybe look at increasing visibility and revenue toward the mission, how would they find you? Um, what's the next step to find out more about what you do? I'd invite you to visit us at westfallgold.com, W-E-S-T-F-A-L-L, gold.com. And just the the 30 seconds on, on what we do, we our mission, what we exist for is to fuel life transformation. And we do that by leveraging the power of gathering to inspire transformational generosity. We've served hundreds of, of nonprofits, ministries, some churches, and we've developed expertise in creating experiences that are incubators for deepening trust and building community that leads to extraordinary giving. It's commonly understood in the development world that it takes 18 months uh, on average to move a person from, hi, my name is Dan, to here's my first major gift. Wow. And we have learned how to shrink that 18 months to just three and a half days within these environments that we create. Um, you know, two billion raised. It took us 17 billion uh, years, Craig, to raise that first billion. Only took us four years to raise the second billion. And there was a pandemic in the middle of that. So we're excited about the trajectory that we're on. And uh, both through our events and experiences and new products and services like the masterclass that we're launching, um, we believe that the best is yet to come, that our greatest impact and our best days are in front of us. Well, I believe with all my heart. So how hard was this interview compared to your cold plunge this morning? <laughs> Man, this was a piece of cake. <laughs> <laughs> how how long did you go and how cold was the water? Uh, you know, I was uh, in for seven minutes uh, this morning at a uh, balmy 52 degrees. It was a little bit warmer this morning. I was at 51 degrees last night. I only did four minutes and I was out. So you are uh, far ahead of me on the cold plunge journey. And uh, I just appreciate your friendship, appreciate your investment uh, in, our, in our leadership community. And to all of our community, I pray that this was helpful to you. Uh, If you're scaling something up, if you're leading remote workers, if you're raising money towards something important, I pray that you got a little bit better today. Uh, Be sure and get the leader guide. Go to life.church slash leadership podcast. We'll give you a summary of um, these notes as well as how you can get a hold of Dan. And uh, as you get better, we all celebrate because we know everyone wins when the leader gets better.